Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. After weeks of stay-at-home orders and business closures, now in early May, some parts of the United States are beginning to reopen. Trump announced federal guidelines yesterday for states to start easing up on shutdown measures and to get back to business. Since late March, President Trump has grappled with the White House's guidance for when and how that reopening process should work. At the end of March, Trump agreed to extend social distancing guidelines for another month, despite his early hopes that the country could reopen by Easter. Easter is our timeline. What a great timeline that would be. These days, though, Trump is celebrating the reopening of some states, and he's increasingly desperate for quick economic revival. Still, COVID-19 cases and deaths continue to rise in this country. We've spent time on this show talking about specific decisions the administration has made during the novel coronavirus pandemic. On this episode, The Post's White House bureau chief, Philip Rucker, takes us through the bigger picture. We take a look inside the dramatic past month inside Trump's administration, a month that included swerves in approach, pivots in messaging, and deliberations that at times left science and politics at odds. We'll explore how the president went from a decision to extend social distancing guidelines in late March to a White House push for expedient economic revival and the reopening of the United States. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Reporting a story about the inner workings of the White House while the country is largely under stay-at-home orders isn't an easy feat. A team at The Post reported on this for weeks. We talked to 82 administration officials, outside advisors to the administration, friends of the president, uh, other people who had sort of intimate knowledge of the inner workings of the White House and and of the health agencies at this time. And that's a pretty extraordinary uh, number of interviews we conducted. But we actually found that it was necessary in order to get uh, the full sense of, of what exactly was happening in the government during this critical month of the coronavirus pandemic. Together, those interviews, that reporting, tells a story of Trump's month-long struggle to reopen America, a struggle that highlights desperation and dysfunction in Trump's White House. Let's begin when the month of March was wrapping up. You know, at the end of March, many Americans, most Americans, were getting used to life in quarantine, so to speak. I mean, many of the states had shut down. Their economies had issued stay-at-home orders. People were learning to adapt to their new reality. Tens of millions of Americans were losing their jobs. Tens of thousands were getting sick with the coronavirus, and, and many were dying. We saw huge outbreaks in New York City, New Jersey, Connecticut, the tri-state area, at that time, the Trump administration, after ignoring much of the threat through January and February, really stepped up in March to take it more seriously. And in the month of March, issued social distancing guidelines, encouraging people uh, to stay at home, not to gather in large groups, not to go to restaurants, not to go to gyms, and so forth. And by the end of March, 
President Trump, he was very eager to uh, reopen the economy, but he was seeing the death numbers rise. He was watching on television as black body bags were being brought out of the Elmhurst Hospital in Queens near where he grew up, a place he uh, remembered passing many times. And he decided at the end of March that uh, this was getting worse, not better, and, and that it was necessary to extend those social distancing guidelines for the full month of April. Nothing would be worse than declaring victory before the victory is won. Therefore, the next two weeks and during this period, it's very important that everyone strongly follow the guidelines. And so that was really a moment when Americans had to dig in and and realize this was, in some respects, the new normal. And we were going to have to live with these restrictions for at least another month. And what information was Trump and the administration using to make decisions back in mid-March? So the administration at this time did not have their own projections of the spread of the coronavirus. So they were relying on the uh, analysis of the University of Washington and other highly regarded publicly available sources. And the projections were really dire. They showed that in a best case scenario with continued social distancing, 1,000 to 240,000 Americans would die in all of this. In a worst case scenario, of course, it would have been up to 2.2 million Americans. And that was a really scary number for the president and for the administration to think about. And it's one of the main factors as to why Trump ultimately agreed with the scientists and decided to extend those guidelines. And was that the only model that Trump was relying on at the time? At the time, that was the only model. But Trump wanted better data. He wanted to have information that would help him and reaffirm a decision to reopen the economy in April. And so they recruited Kevin Hassett, a top economist. He had been the chairman uh, of the president's Council on Economic Advisors. He was recruited back to the White House in this period to help run the, the pandemic response. And he was quietly building his own model. And by early to mid-April, that model started to project fewer deaths than the publicly available models. And that was data that was very encouraging to Trump and it helped influence the president's decision to pivot away from the public health crisis and and towards the economic health crisis. And as we now know, of course, as more and more Americans have died, that has its original characterization turned out to be too good to be true. But now during this chaotic month, while Trump was shown these models about predictive outcomes for the spread and for the economy, he was also being exposed to information about possible treatments and possible cures. And his embrace of those potential treatments complicated things for the White House even more, specifically because Trump embraced hydroxychloroquine. So where did Trump learn about this drug and why did he seem to latch onto this one? You know, this is one of the more interesting subplots of the coronavirus pandemic. It's the president latching on to fantasy cures and and magical thinking. And it, it stemmed from a motivation to see this virus eradicated, to see it go away, to see the problems disappear. But Trump got a lot of this information from television. He would watch Fox News Channel late at night, uh, early in the morning, and the anchors on Fox, the hosts on Fox, but also the medical professionals, the doctors who came on television as part of those panels, were talking about hydroxychloroquine. It had not been approved yet 
by the Food and Drug Administration for treatment for the coronavirus, but it is, of course, an anti-malarial drug that's been on the market for some time. And a number of doctors were prescribing it to patients with COVID on an experimental basis. And there were anecdotal, there was anecdotal evidence that this might be working. And so Trump latched onto it and he became the most prominent promoter of the drug. Uh, sales went through the roof, of course. People tried to get it or get their doctors to prescribe it to them because they were looking for any any cure to the coronavirus. But the president was out there every day on Twitter at his briefings touting this drug. And there were a few interesting ways he was encouraged to do so. His personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, the former New York mayor, was calling him regularly in the residence of the White House to tell him about how magical this drug was and how it's the cure to coronavirus. He was even paid a visit in the Oval Office by Laura Ingraham, the Fox News Channel uh, commentator and host of a primetime show. And she brought along with her two of the TV doctors from what she calls her medicine cabinet into the Oval Office to, to give medical advice to the president, to tout and pitch this drug. And uh, there's one sort of interesting moment that we reported in this story, and, and credit to my colleague Josh Dossie for confirming this, that Trump actually encouraged one of his Mar-a-Lago friends, a vitamins executive down in Mar-a-Lago, to call the governor of California, gave him Gavin Newsom's cell phone number, told him to call Newsom and try to sell California on this drug. And in fact, this guy did call Gavin Newsom and tried to arrange to broker a trade where Newsom would buy mass quantities of hydroxychloroquine from a manufacturer in India. The California governor, of course, declined that offer and, and there was no deal, but it just speaks to the extent to which Trump thought this drug was going to work and, and how much he personally was trying to promote it. And we did an entire episode devoted to Trump's enthusiasm for this drug. But now weeks after that episode and after we've filled our national stockpile with more of this drug, what do we actually know about its effectiveness? Does it work? Well, it's dangerous. We have seen a few studies, one by the Veterans Administration, that found that people with COVID who've taken this drug are more likely to die than those with COVID who've not taken this drug. You're sent back in the hopes that the drug hydroxychloroquine could be used as a possible treatment for coronavirus. A clinical study indicates the drug touted by President Trump does not work and, in fact, may have a high death risk. That's a scary thing to think about. We've also since had a warning from the Food and Drug Administration, which still, by the way, has not approved the drug for treatment for COVID, but a warning against prescribing it uh, for patients with COVID because of the dangers. It can it can create all sorts of heart problems in patients that take the drug and, and potentially be fatal. And is Trump still talking about hydroxychloroquine? You know, he's not talking about it regularly. We don't hear him promote it every day like he used to, but he has been very defensive uh, when pressed about it. I actually asked him in the White House briefing a couple of weeks ago why he's no longer talking about hydroxychloroquine. And he said, well, I still I still like the drug. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. What do you have to lose? Effectively, I'm, I'm shorthanding what the president said there. But that's his attitude. He's unwilling, of course, to concede that he was wrong. And he's unwilling to apologize for having uh, led the American people to think that this was a magical cure-all. And he still clings on to hope that this is a drug that will, will cure this uh, horrible virus. Okay, let's move on to some of the tensions in the White House as questions of reopening the economy started to really bump up against the advice of scientists. Who was in the president's ear in early April about the need to reopen the economy? 
A lot of people were in the president's ear about the need to reopen the economy. First and foremost, his political advisors and the economic team at the White House, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, Larry Kudlow, the National Economic Council director, and the vice president and his team, Mark Short, the vice president's chief of staff. A lot of these folks have been quite skeptical of the virus, not skeptical that it exists, but skeptical that it's as deadly and as damaging for society, for the country writ large, as we've been led to believe. And they think that the government reaction to the coronavirus pandemic has been way out of proportion, that we should have never closed businesses, never shut down the economy. And these people have been pressuring Trump through early April to shift his focus, to focus on the economy, to look at the devastation, not only of people losing their jobs, but the decline in stock values, the decline in profits for his supporters and and talking about the election impacts for him in the November election, which is, of course, only six months away. Trump was also hearing from others. He was hearing from a lot of friends, from business folks in the real estate community on Wall Street in New York, people he's interacted with before, people who've been funding his campaigns, all encouraging him to reopen the economy. And eventually that created momentum, uh, coupled, by the way, with the internal Uh, projections by Kevin Hassett, the economic advisor who had built his own model that projected a far rosier scenario in terms of death totals. And that all led to a shift in the president's thinking around Easter in mid-April. Now, who was on the other side of this spectrum, most presumably science folks in the task force? That's right. Doctors Deborah Burks and Anthony Fauci are the two most prominent doctors on that White House coronavirus task force. But there are certainly other medical and scientific experts in the government. There are people on the National Security Council who've been very concerned about the spread of the coronavirus. And and they've been warning the president that it's going to get worse, not better, and that the most effective way to prevent the spread, to prevent mass casualties and fatalities in the United States is to continue social distancing and to continue all of these mitigation efforts. So the president was hearing from both sides in this period, but he really did make a shift to start to believe what the economists and the political advisors were telling him. And do we have a sense of why he made that shift or what ultimately drove that shift? We found in our reporting that the president, in in almost all of the decisions that he's made through this pandemic, has been motivated first and foremost by his own political fortunes and by his personal image, what's going to be popular, what's going to protect him electorally, what's going to help him win the election against Joe Biden in November. And he calculated that he was going to win this election based on the economy, not based on social distancing. And and that if people stay at home and businesses stay shut for much longer, there was no way he would be able to rebound the economy soon enough. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham. And this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. For the election. So part of our ability to reopen and the country's ability to treat patients who do get COVID-19 is managing and distributing supplies like ventilators and tests and protective gear. Missed 5 million tests would be distributed before the end of March. Now that we have obviously passed that date, have we seen those tests distributed? 
We have now, I mean, it, it is now early May, and we've seen the testing capacity increase not as far as experts think it needs to go, but increased quite steadily. And in fact, 7 million, more than 7 million Americans have been tested to date. But the testing capacity currently is greater than the actual number of tests being conducted. And the reason for that is a lot of states have enough machines, they have enough testing facilities, but they don't have enough testing supplies. They don't have enough swabs. They don't have enough other, other materials and supplies that are necessary to conduct these tests. And Trump also talks a lot about these Abbott machines, the machines that are able to test so many people in such a short period of time and effectively spit out instant results. And there aren't enough trained technicians in the country to operate those machines. And so those machines are are sitting in a lot of the states that need to conduct these tests, and yet they don't have the personnel uh, to run them, nor do they have the swabs and other materials uh, to conduct the individual tests. And so this remains a chronic problem, even though the administration is claiming uh, that all is well and, and everybody's getting tested. And it's important to underscore that while 7 million sounds like a big number, and it is a big number uh, of, of people getting tested, we were a country of more than 300 million people. And the experts say that many, many, many more of our population need to be tested in order to really determine where the coronavirus is and, and figure out ways to contain the spread by isolating those people who test positive. So then over the course of the past month or so, what have been some of the major hurdles for states to get these tests and distribute them? You know, a lot of the states have had problems with supply chain. The, the, the federal government in the month of April effectively wiped their hands of the testing problem, said, no, we're not going to have a national testing strategy. It's going to be up to the states, up to the governor's to conduct the tests themselves, to develop their own plans for testing, and to procure the supplies that they need. Well, that means you then have 50 states competing with each other for limited supplies of testing materials. And, and the administration, the White House, FEMA, have not done enough in the view of the governors that we spoke to for this story to streamline the supplies and to try to help bring supplies in, even if they need to come in from overseas and get them out to the states that need them the most. And we saw an extraordinary case in Maryland where the Republican governor, Larry Hogan, was just fed up with the, the testing supply shortfall. And his wife uh, is Korean-American. And she actually negotiated their own purchase from South Korea. It took about 20 or so days of negotiations with the Koreans, with the embassy, with the State Department, with Customs and Border Protection to arrange for this to happen. But by the middle of or the end, rather, of April, uh, a Korean air flight uh, flew in from South Korea, landed at Baltimore, uh, Washington International Airport and unloaded 500,000 test kits, and it's the supplies that Hogan needed for his state and for the people of Maryland. And the most extraordinary thing in all of that is Hogan was so concerned that the federal government, that the Trump administration would try to seize those testing kits for federal use, that he had the materials, the cargo, guarded by Maryland National Guardsmen and Maryland State Police, and it's now being held at an undisclosed location that the governor has called Maryland's Fort Knox. So you have governors at odds with the federal government. What does the White House have to say about that approach? Do they take responsibility for some of the problems that have been exacerbated for governors trying to acquire equipment? 
They don't. And they actually challenge the idea that governors are not getting the equipment they need. I interviewed Jared Kushner for the story. That's the president's son-in-law and senior advisor, but he also happens to be sort of internally leading the charge on supply chain issues and helping coordinate a lot of the pandemic response efforts. And he said, look, I, I challenge any governor who thinks they have unmet needs when it comes to testing to call my office and tell me what they need. And I will show them that it's been fulfilled. There, there's an extreme level of confidence in the White House, at least publicly, that they've met the needs of all of these states and that they've solved the supply chain issues and that uh, everything is moving according to plan and as fast as needed. The experts disagree, obviously. Some of the governors disagree, but, but that just speaks to the assuredness of, of the White House. And, and they feel like they've done nothing wrong here. And one last thing on the point of supplies and public health. There were internal struggles inside the White House, as you guys reported, over something called contact tracing. So this is basically the process where health workers track down anyone who might have been exposed to someone with COVID-19. Now, a lot of states took actions into their own hands, setting up systems for this. But what was the White House's approach to addressing the need for contact tracing operations? It's so important that you ask that because the experts all say you can have all the testing data in the world, but it doesn't really help a community solve this problem if you don't, in addition, have contact tracing to try to figure out who the people who've tested positive have been interacting with and try to contain all of those people to therefore mitigate the spread. The, the problem is that the federal government does not have a national contact tracing program. Uh, contact tracing is hard. It's expensive. It requires a lot of manpower. You have to hire a lot of people to do it, virtual armies to do this kind of work. And the feds have not even begun uh, those discussions to do that. We're seeing a lot of states develop their own contact tracing plans. The state of Massachusetts is putting together, they call it an army of contact tracers. New York, New Jersey, Connecticut are working together. There are efforts by private philanthropies, including the foundation of former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg and other efforts as well. But there is no national contact tracing program. And all of the medical experts that we've talked to about this say it's a huge gaping hole in the Trump administration's long-term plan uh, to reopen the economy and, and to get back to normal. One of the things that you reported Trump reacted to was the desire to reopen the country that he saw from a smattering of protests. How did those protests affect the president? He watched television footage of these protests, and these are the protests that were taking place outside state capitals around the country, many of them capitals led by Democratic governors, and they were protesting the stay-at-home orders. And Trump would look at the images and see a lot of Trump flags and a lot of Trump campaign paraphernalia and Trump t-shirts and Trump buttons. And he realized, those are my people. And he decided to express solidarity with them. He tweeted, uh, liberate in all caps, Michigan, liberate Virginia, liberate Minnesota. All three are states with Democratic governors where he saw these protests taking place. And some of the Republican allies of the president were a little alarmed by those tweets. They thought it was the president giving in to sort of the fringe aspects of society. These were not millions of people marching on state capitals. These were not necessarily mainstream protesters. They were very much kind of the, the fringes of society because polling has shown us 
that the majority of the American people support continued social distancing and understand the need for it and, and support these decisions that their, their states were doing. But Trump wanted to find a way to show solidarity with the protest movements and, and tweeted liberate and has since spoken very favorably uh, of the protesters. So there were all of these influences on Trump and his thinking, but eventually the administration decides to release guidelines for reopening the country. Can you talk me through what happened in terms of the CDC's initial guidelines for reopening and how they were reconciled with some of the White House's interests? What was ultimately released to the public? So the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which historically has taken the lead on on these sorts of pandemic efforts, has put put together very detailed guidelines in the end of April for reopening the country, specific metrics by which communities and businesses and and states can measure progress, uh, specific hurdles that need to be cleared uh, in order to move to different phases of reopening, and specific instructions for different kinds of places or industries, instructions for churches, instructions for restaurants, instructions for gyms, and what have you. And those guidelines were sent to the White House and with the expectation that the White House task force would approve uh, issuing them to the public. And what happened is the CDC learned, when we all learned publicly, when President Trump and, and Dr. Deborah Birx issued reopening guidelines that they were rejected. They The guidelines that were issued were far more vague. They did not contain metrics. They did not contain specific instructions. They really shifted responsibility to the states, to governors, to make those decisions themselves. Our reporting uh, indicates that that was a deliberate decision by the White House because they didn't want to have any any metrics by which President Trump would be measured and held accountable. And they were hoping to issue some sort of broad language that would encourage states to reopen, but place the onus entirely on the state so that if anything were to go wrong, Trump would not be the one getting blamed. Well, on the point of Trump and blame, what has polling data shown through this crisis about Trump's response? The polling has has varied, of course, and there was a, a slight uptick in his favorability early in the crisis. But the narrative that has settled down now among the American people that is prevalent in our polling at the Washington Post, but also in other polls elsewhere, as well as, by the way, the president's private internal polling, is that Americans do not approve of the way the president has handled this crisis. He is seen as as not responding quick enough, of the government not doing enough to help with the crisis. His approval rating has slipped slightly. He is losing to Vice President Biden in large part because of his handling of this crisis. And that is, in its own sense, a political crisis for the president. And it's one of the reasons why in the last week or two, we've seen this rhetorical shift from the president to focus on reopening the country and and focus away from the health aspects and the, the, the dangers and deaths of the pandemic. And also this week, Vice President Pence, who heads the White House's coronavirus task force, said it would wind down by the end of the month. But then Trump tweeted that it would continue indefinitely. Do we have a sense at this point as to what led the White House to change course? We do. And it's it's a classic case of Trump reacting to what he sees in the media. So there there was, in fact, a, a decision made in the White House that they would be winding down the work of the coronavirus task force. Vice President Pence confirmed it earlier this week. President Trump even confirmed it earlier this week. And then Trump let it sit in for the night. He saw a lot of criticism to it in, in on television news and newspapers. 
He saw, he, he heard from people who were calling him saying, what are you doing? This is not a good idea. You should not be ending the coronavirus task force. And then on Wednesday of this week, he announced, in fact, the task force would remain indefinitely and would continue to do its work. It would uh, shift in its mission a little bit to focus on economic reopening and to also focus on the development uh, and procurement of a vaccine, which is a very long-term project. And he said that Drs. Deborah Burks and Anthony Fauci would be continuing on in the task force, although he's going to be naming some new people to it, probably some economic figures. But it's a real shift and about face for the president. And, and he said it was because he heard how popular the task force is. But it's not so much the popularity of the task force. The issue is that we're still in the middle of the pandemic and people are still dying. And a lot of experts out there and just everyday Americans think it's irresponsible for the federal government to be wrapping up the work of its pandemic response as the pandemic continues. One last question for you as we think about where our country is in this moment. This week, Trump acknowledged that it's possible more Americans will die as governors lift stay-at-home orders, but he said, quote, we have to get our country open. Now, of course, this is a tremendously difficult decision for any president to have to make. We're all sort of weighing this as a nation grappling with the morality around these trade-offs, real human lives versus a functioning economy. What have you learned from your reporting about how Trump grapples with these kinds of heavy, significant decisions? You know, we know from our reporting that the president has trouble making some of these difficult decisions, that it weighs on him, but that he's not necessarily approaching it the way past presidents have. Past presidents will will make a really kind of sober analysis of data and of advice they're getting from people and make their decisions based in part on what they've learned from history and what they've read in their briefing materials. What we know from President Trump is that he doesn't really read and understand history. He doesn't read his briefing materials. He doesn't study the data. He makes gut decisions and he's influenced heavily by what people are telling him orally on the phone in person. He is influenced heavily by what's in his own personal best interest in terms of his image, in terms of his popularity, in terms of his reelection prospects. And that's no different in the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, most of the decisions that he's made along the way have had to do with his gut uh, instincts about what is going to be politically advantageous for him. And I assume we're going to see that continue. All right, Phil, thank you so much for your reporting and for your time. Thank you, Allison. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? To read the full story, 34 Days of Pandemic, by Post reporters Philip Rucker, Josh Dossi, Yasmin Abutaleb, Robert Costa, and Lena Sun, visit WashingtonPost.com or find the direct link in the episode description. One more bit of housekeeping before the end of this episode. I'm Carol Alderman. If you're used to listening through to the end of this show, you might know me as the person who gets an adjective before my name in the credits. Well, I have some news. This episode will be my last here on the Can He Do That team. I'm leaving the Washington Post to tackle something new. But first, I wanted to say a huge thank you to you. Every single person that listens to this podcast is what makes it all worthwhile. It has truly been an honor, so thank you for listening. I leave you in the hands of the incredibly talented producer, Ariel Plotnik. And of course, this podcast would be nothing without the intelligent, witty, gorgeous, hardworking, nimble, sparkling, wise, creative, encouraging, supportive, inspiring, 
an all-around amazing friend, mentor, and colleague, your host, Allison Michaels. It's been amazing working with you, and I'll miss you all. Can You Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Ariel Plotnick and for the last time, my dear colleague and friend, the truly exceptional Carol Alderman, with logo art from Loren Boglio and theme music by Ted Muldoon. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.